Welcome to Speaking with Shadows, the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot. I'm Josie Long. Throughout Speaking with Shadows, I've visited a lot of pretty impressive, beautiful and awe-inspiring places. But today I'm not at a castle or a grand stately home. Once again, English Heritage have sent me on an adventure to uncover a little-told corner of our history. I've turned off of a wide, elegant street here in very beautiful, very fancy York and I've come up a side road to a car park. And around me are some pretty modern looking blocks of flats. And then right in front of me is a building that looks like it could be, I don't even know, a weather station? But the thing that really piques my interest is that there's a sign on the front of it that says Vigilant State, which I mean, it's just a little bit too intense and 1984 and its vibes to ignore. I'm promised that in the next half hour, I'll get to meet someone who lived and breathed Britain's Cold War and hear about the war that they lived every day that never happened. I'm going to be finding out about the network of nuclear bunkers lurking beneath our towns and cities. But the real surprise is the civilians who staffed them. People had this idea that they'd drop one bomb on England, it'd make a hole in it, would sink, you know. They had nuclear weapons, they had multiple warheads, so they could hit five targets at the same time. Didn't have to be a big one, it could be a medium one, but five of them. I have a feeling that we're about to head underground. I'm glad you can join me. I'm joined by senior curator Kevin Booth who's going to fill me in on the awesome hidden history behind this English heritage site. This is such an unusual place. I mean, where are we? What are we doing? You're in the Royal Observer Corps 20 Group Control in York, and if you know what that means. I don't at all, please. Often known as the bunker, this is essentially the place where you would plot nuclear Armageddon. This is the place where you observe and understand what bombs are going off where. When was this built? It's built in 1961. It's built at the height of really when the world feels threatened by nuclear war, by imminent conflict. So it's built in 61 and it survives for the 30 years through to 1991 when you know, theoretically, the Cold War ends in inverted commas. And I'm, I'm right in thinking this isn't a bunker in terms of ordinary people being saved from an airstrike? No, this is an entirely functional space for volunteers to do their duty and to work out how the world's going to carry on once war has happened. So this, this lasted for 30 years, and for 30 years people felt that it was necessary and absolutely. important. Absolutely, it was part of our... Our attempt, our hope at being able to carry on some kind of life after conflict. Were people aware of its existence in York? Well, of course you always meet people in the locality who would tell you, oh, I never even knew that was there. And they've lived here all their life, and that's a classic. It's sort of a semi-open secret, really. It's it's got an air of mystique about it, and yet, if you're going to get 20,000 people to volunteer across the country for the Observer Corps, there's got to be a certain public profile, hasn't so there? So tell me more about the Observer Corps. 20,000 people volunteered for it. They're a very interesting organisation, and the people are very interesting. You get anything from farmers to civil servants to lawyers to, whom, to bus drivers. You might have a three-man post in the middle of the North York Moor 
And that could be putting together that farmer and that solicitor in the same space, where normally, perhaps in real life, they'd never associate. You're getting kind of 50-50 split, women and men. Um, Hierarchies, yes, but not as clear-cut and not as obvious as out in the normal world. It's a really interesting fraternity, is the word I keep coming back to, my feeling about the Observer Corps. At the height, 20, 25,000 people in the 60s and 70s are serving as volunteers across the country doing this job, turning up with the idea that were the, as they say, the balloon to go up, were a vigilant state to say that it was uh, status red and they were about to get bombed, then they're here ready to, to do their job. It's weird because on one hand that is so intense and, you know, life-threatening to all life on earth but on the other hand it does have a feel of like a real like english neighborhood watch vibe (laughs) if you think about the armed forces and 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 the territorial army which is a volunteer force the observer corps remains to this day largely unknown with the british public it's not one it's not a glamorous institution in most people's minds if they've ever heard of it and i don't know that the observers felt themselves as glamorous. They felt themselves as a tremendously tight-knit fraternity of people who understood each other and why they were doing what they were doing. Why do you think they chose to put the bunker right here in this spot? You've got to imagine when it's built in 1961, this is a big open garden behind an old Victorian villa. It's an orchard. There were pear and apple trees. And then later, that Victorian villa becomes a tax office, so this is government land. And it's a perfect spot just to plonk a big nuclear bunker in an urban setting where you can get lots of people here nice and quick and you can get engineers here if you need. And it's tucked away behind the main road, but it's entirely visible to everyone. So it's hiding in in plain sight. sight. Hidden in plain sight, yeah. Tell me a bit more about what this was designed for, what actually did go on and was planned to go on. The Royal Observer Corps, their role in the nuclear age is to observe where any nuclear explosions are occurring. And by observe, I mean plot the coordinates, detect the altitude, how powerful is this bomb, and all that information relays into this control. So you can imagine that actually across the country there are one and a half thousand tiny little concrete bunkers spread all across the countryside. And if you go out, if you're driving along and you're pottering past a field and you see a telegraph pole disappear into the middle of the field and stop at a mound, Almost certainly that is one of the old Observer Corps bunkers. There are so many. There's so many more than I thought. Yeah. So this building here is, is a group control, okay? And the group is Yorkshire, and there's about 40-odd of these little bunkers in Yorkshire. And this takes all the data that they're providing, and it analyses it, and it feeds it on to whichever agencies need, to, need it, military, civilian, police, what have you. And it doesn't just plot the bombs, it then has a kind of real-time data gathering of radiation. Where is the radiation, how powerful it is, what the weather patterns are, so they can tell people you need to be inside behind your sofa or you can go outside because it's relatively clear. So it's about understanding what's devastated and where you can get or where you can't get or what rail lines might be open or not. But it's also about forewarning the public as to when it might just possibly be safe to come out. The first thing I'm noticing is there's a, a a wooden board that almost looks like something you'd have in a church for the hymns, but on it it says, Attack State, 
and then it's open to one side and it says black. And then on a larger board, it says black. It says black. So we might, we might close black off and we might open white. White. Or indeed, red. I feel like red is going to be worse. Uh, well, attack warning red is a kind of, uh, I think it's quite a famous phrase. It, it, it essentially means that either imminently we're going to be attacked or we have indeed been attacked. White is all clear and black is heightened threat. Oh, here's a question. Yeah. Were there times in the Bunker's 30-year history when, for whatever reason, it was on red? Do you know, that's one of the remarkable things about this place. No. Oh, good. Well, it is good. It is good. It means even during the Cuban crisis, of whatever that is, 1962, this building was not operable. So the Royal Observer Corps are this volunteer organisation, and they train here on a week, but this building is empty for most of the time. And it would only ever be staffed in anger if we got to black or black special moving towards the real threat of attack. So it was like 30 years of practice for something that didn't actually happen. So for all of those volunteers across this country, it is this long sort of phony war, phony cold war of, of waiting and waiting and hoping against. Oh, well, I'm, I'm just going to slip it over to white, just for my own sense of, uh, sense of peace of mind. There we go. So let's walk in, sorry. Oh, there's an airlock. Open only if other airlock door is closed and close before opening the next airlock door. Mm. You've got to think that almost everything you see has never moved. Yeah. It's never left the building. It's never been taken down and conserved and then put back up. This building is, well, it's the last of its kind. It's the last of this kind to survive in anything like this level of detail or completeness. And it is almost the building that the observers walk out of in 1991 when they stood down. We're now going to drop down into the kind of main body of the bunker. It's a three-storey concrete hulk, basically. We've just got down the stairs. We're next to the ejector unit room, which has a very satisfying metal grill floor, which is how I imagine a bunker to be. And if you're lucky, the ejector might just kick off for us whilst we're, <laughs> whilst we're chatting. We're below the level of the main strains here, so ah. you need this kit to pump all our um, effluent out. That's nicely put, thank you. No, you're welcome. As we got to this corridor, there are coat hangers for people who've come in to work. It's, it's really between some sort of clubhouse and a death survival place. It just feels like an office block. Yeah. The idea is that it will survive, hopefully, for up to 30 days. And that, that's reckoned to be long enough to get the pattern of radiation and how it's decaying over time. And by the time you've done 30 days, your job is essentially done. By, I mean, here we are, we're in the plant room. This is 1961 kit. This is all the original kit. It, 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 the only stuff that I've seen from this era that it reminds me of is synthesizers. And it really sort of makes me think how civilian my lifestyle is. So it's sort of, yeah, of that time, but this technology being used for much more serious things. It's all analogue as well, you see, ah. down here. This plant room, it's all analogue. There's no, there's nothing computerised that's controlling or running the system. You need an engineer down here to make sure this place is maintained. I can't wait to hear who's waiting for me deep inside the bunker. But first, let's make sure we're up to date on our Cold War history. Dr Grace Huxford is a senior lecturer in modern history at the University of Bristol. 
She explained why operations like this were so essential in deterring all-out warfare in the 20th century. So the Cold War is a global conflict that begins in 1945 at the end of the Second World War and that runs up till pretty much 1991. And it's often associated with the tension between the United States of America and the Soviet Union. But actually now historians are starting to see it as a much more complex global conflict that involves not just those two superpowers, but uh, communist China, for example, newly decolonised states across the world, and also ageing empires like Britain and France. So the Cold War is is actually much more complex than than we perhaps think about um, initially. And it's called a Cold War because it's longer term hostility rather than necessarily two or more nations at war for any length of time. There are particularly sort of worrisome periods during the Cold War and there are some outright conflicts as well. So we see the Korean War in 1950 to to 1953, for example. So there are moments of, of real heightened tension during the Cold War. And nuclear weaponry is a very big part of the Cold War conflict. Less than a month after it was first tested in 1945, the United States used the first atomic bomb in Japan at Hiroshima and again at Nagasaki. That's very very much the starting point for, for a, a broader nuclear arms race. Britain was an ally of the United States and it had a number of options thinking about nuclear weaponry. So it could defend itself and its population from nuclear attack from the communist bloc And it could build on its experience of, for example, the Blitz during the Second World War. And that might involve organisations like the Volunteer Civil Defence Corps, uh, who could provide guidance or support to bombed communities, as they had done during, or as other organisations had done during the Second World War. Or they could evacuate people. However, by 1955, there is a major government report which shows just how woeful some of these responses would be, and particularly in the face of the developing thermonuclear weaponry. The destructive power is so much greater than even the atomic bomb. That causes a lot of worry, both in Whitehall um, and beyond. So the other option that Britain has open to it then is to deter the communist bloc from ever using nuclear weaponry. So that involves both deterring them using nuclear weaponry of their own. Britain has its own nuclear weaponry programme. It tests its first A-bomb in 1952 and its own thermonuclear device in 1957. But it's also showing at the same time that Britain could fight a nuclear war and could, could withstand a nuclear war. That's where some of these systems, some of the, um, the the monitoring posts that we see come into come into play. They're they're part of that deterrence strategy. They show that that Britain is capable of carrying out a nuclear war and of fighting and engaging in a nuclear war. So deterrence is a really delicate balance: having nuclear weaponry, having nuclear infrastructure, but never wanting to use it. The first advice that was given to householders in a, in a booklet called Advice to Householders was in the 1950s about how to respond to a nuclear bomb. The Second World War is, is, a, is a recent lived experience. It's shaping how people respond to the Cold War. So we see things like people talking about evacuation policies. How might you evacuate people in the event of a nuclear war? However, by the 19, later 1960s, People are starting to lose faith in some of these more established ideas of protecting the civilian population. 
some of the organisations and protections were increasingly seen as antiquated. So the Civil Defence Corps, for example, people hiding under their tables to protect themselves from a nuclear blast. None of that really worked. And we see increasing opposition to the Cold War as well. People are, are making, even making fun of some of this, um, this advice that is given to citizens. In 1980, the government, under a lot of pressure, releases mm. another uh, document advising households on what to do called Protect and Survive. And that, interestingly, has nothing about evacuation in it. Um, it tells people to stay in their homes and how they should respond to a a nuclear bomb, but also to nuclear fallout and radiation as well. And it was accompanied, we see, with some, some interesting public information films that accompanied it as well. The first two days will be the most dangerous period because fallout will be at its worst. So it is in your best interest to stay in your inner refuge the whole of that time, however cramped or uncomfortable it may be. But if you must leave the refuge to go to the lavatory or to get more water or food, don't stay out a second longer than is necessary. In any case, don't go outside the fallout room at all. After two days, the danger from fallout will be less, but it may still kill you. So the longer you stay in your inner refuge, the better your chances are. People start to make fun of this. There's a document called Protest and Survive. To put yourself in the government's shoes, they do need to, you know, they do need to give advice potentially. And people are asking for advice as well. They were trying to come up with a a credible response to ensure that at least an administrative system survived a nuclear bomb, if not the majority of the civilian population. After taking in these really intense ideas, I'm just about ready for some fresh, non-radioactive York air back up at ground level. But there is still a lot of this bunker to see. So where are we going next, Kevin? We're going to go into the kitchen and the canteen. (laughs) Right. The place of relaxation if you're under severe stress. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Yeah, the kitchen. Again, it looks like a bit from a time warp. You've got, like, old-fashioned... teapots and urns and tea trays. It hasn't changed a great deal. Effectively, the doors locked on it in 1992 and it sits for about eight years with no one coming in. And EH, English Heritage, eventually take it on about 2000 and colleagues who came down at the time say that it, you know, the kind of mushrooms growing out of the carpets and it was severely damp and severely stinky. But all this stuff is just kind of here still. And it took five years to bring the building back to condition, but we really tried not to strip it out and clean it all back and bring stuff back. We just didn't want, really want to touch anything. So how much... Oh. Sewage ejection. <laughs> sewage ejection. <laughs> We've been interrupted by the sewage ejection. So it is really intriguing to be in this space that was about the only recreational relaxed space, the, the canteen... Because it makes me think, okay, had people been stuck here, had, you know, they actually been living here for those 30 days, what would it have been like? Like, what would life have actually been like for civilians who were a part of this place? Then I think there's someone you should meet who's probably got some answers to that question. So this is perhaps one of the very few times on Speaking With Shadows that I actually get to meet someone who has lived and breathed the story that we're exploring. 
I'm here with Anne Metcalf, who was one of the volunteers who trained as part of the Royal Observer Corps here in York. I'm so lucky to get a first-hand account of her experiences down here in the bunker. Hi Anne, it is so lovely to meet you. It's nice to meet you too. And it's a really unusual place to meet you as well, but one that I'm imagining you're really familiar with. Yes. So how long were you a part of the Royal Observer Corps for? I served for 27 years. I joined when I was 17. And why did you join at 17? What happened? I'd left school and I'd started my first job and I missed my friends at school. And I was going to join a a large youth club, but they were all shut for the summer. And a girl at work said, why don't you come with me to the Royal Observer Corps? So what what was it like arriving for the first time? Like, what were you expecting and how did it play out? I didn't know what to expect. All she said was that we plot nuclear fallout and bombs and things. And I, I had no idea at all. It wasn't like anything I'd ever done before. How often would you come and be involved? That's the other thing. We had weekly meetings, you know, at the same night every, every week that you came. I used to go from work into Leeds, have a quick sandwich in a coffee bar somewhere, and then they had a coach that ran from the centre of Leeds and brought you to the headquarters. And how many people were there operating in this bunker when you started? This one, when when I came to York, it was a full full crew. We had three crews, and each crew had about 40 members. So on an exercise, you'd come in for a limited time, and you'd meet the people from the other crews as well. But they wouldn't all be in here at the same time. You know, some might come for the morning and some for the afternoon, and... And we had one exercise a year where it was the first 40 or so that arrived that went on duty. <laughs> and then the rest were, were sort of not, not needed and they, they worked on those. You brought some photos and they're really amazing, partly because you can see just how long you were involved in the core and all the different things you did. But also I really was in, interested in the social aspect of it because... There were camps that I can imagine were to do with training and to do with the more formal aspects, but there must have also been really social events as well. Yes, the camp ran, it ran for five weeks and you you attended for a week. So there were um, were three or four hundred people there, each camp. You attended classes during the day. The first night there was also dance. So everybody went to that one. And the last night, there was always a dance as well. And then Wednesday afternoon, we had as a free afternoon. And they always uh, organised coach trips. So if you wanted to go on the coach trip, you could do that. So you did mix with other people. It's so interesting to me because it's in part like this civilian organisation, but it's in part your learning and your training and it's really serious stuff as well. You are aware that if you were ever called up, it, it would be very serious mm. because you'd be on the verge of a nuclear war, yeah. which people are not going to survive. You learned about the effects of radiation on people. and Can I just ask, like... What was it like to kind of carry that knowledge around in the rest of the day-to-day world? I mean, you had to sign the official secrets acts when you joined anyway. So it wasn't talked about a great deal. 
We knew that if there was a, an emergency, that we would be called up. I mean, fortunately, nothing happened like that. Got a bit scary at times, but nothing actually happened. <laughs> there was one point when it, there was trouble with Cuba and it was getting a little bit serious. And it's at that time you think, oh, I hope they don't start anything. <laughs> because it, it was, it would have started a lot of trouble. People had this idea that they'd drop one bomb on England, it'd make a hole in it, we'd sink, you know. It doesn't work like that. There'd be a few bombs, and they got really clever with the actual way that they sent them because they had nuclear weapons, they had multiple warheads, so they could hit five targets at the same time. Didn't have to be a big one, it could be a medium one, but five of them. And then you can't control the fallout. And I mean, obviously, there were those of us like me who had children. And that, that crops up when you think of uh, if there was an emergency and you were called, would you go? You never know, and because it never happened. Mm. But I would have thought, I've been trained now to do certain things that would help to, to save people's lives. And therefore, I, I hope that I would, you know, take up my duty if, if I'd have been called. I know a few years ago, somebody asked me if I would have left my children, and, and I said yes. And, and if there was a nuclear attack, because I know how people can die very slowly of nuclear you know, radiation, I would want the bomb to hit my house directly. I wouldn't want my family to be on the edge of it. My son heard this and he was mortified. <laughs> oh, you want the bomb to hit it? But there is a reasoning behind it. We've come into the bunker, but I've only come this far and I feel like there's a lot going on that I've not seen at all. Yes, there's more to it than a canteen. <laughs> right, if you'd like to come this way and I'll, uh, I'll show you the business part of the building. Thanks. Right, so we're walking down quite a tight corridor. Yes, it's quite quite dark. Oh it's gosh. Dark in here as well. This is the main hub of the ops room. Oh wow, it's on two floors. Yes. We we're in like a gallery. We're on the balcony. On the balcony. These first boards here that you can see on your left hand side are all numbered with the posts that were in our group, in the York group. So, these individual seats and each one's in front of a kind of yeah. grid and it says the time on it and then the post numbers so it's like 40 41 42 that's right and they're connected by headset to the people down the actual posts mostly when you first started you'd be taking readings from the post you're in direct contact telephone contact with the people down the post. So this is training for an attack scenario? Yes. So you'd be getting information from the post. They had instruments that would record. If a bomb had gone off, there's a flash. It records that. You'd also have like a pressure wave that came from the place that the bomb had gone off, and that registers on another piece of equipment. 
and then that would be triangulated on the table that you see here. And when you have information from three posts, where the lines cross, that's where the position of the bomb is. And then you can relay that back? Yes. If it was a ground burst, they're the most dangerous, it would have a little red bomb sign. Oh, I see, yeah. If it was a, an air burst, it would be a green one. You can see them on the side of the, the map. So then over the course of maybe an evening doing this work, how many simulations would they run? So it would have an exercise already prepared mm -hmm. and it would have probably, uh, for an evening exercise, maybe four or five bombs mm -hmm. because that's where you're getting your practice from. Mm -hmm. And you have people down there that are going to be plotting the information that's on this board. Downstairs in the well of the ops room, there are two screens yeah. straight opposite where we're standing now. You have the warning team, and they, they are a different organisation, but they want the information because they are going to assess the wind speed and where the fallout is going to go. And that is why we have the areas around us. If you look at the left-hand one, you can see the York area. Mm. Above it, there's Durham. Mm -hmm. If Durham has a bomb that goes off near our border and the wind is blowing towards the south, we're going to get the, the fallout. So it's a combination of like assessing what's happening and then warning and yes. preparing afterwards. Yes. This, this piece of kit here is called Audrey. And it's an atomic weapon detection range and estimated yield. And what it does, it, if there was a nuclear burst, it would record it and it comes out on a piece of paper. The only trouble is if there was a, a storm anywhere, the lightning could set it off. So we'd all be nicely doing an exercise and Audrey would go off and and churn out the thing and you you think, oops. <laughs> it wasn't not frightening. Did it not feel like, oh no, it's really happening? Well, uh, we didn't really think it was a proper bomb, but we didn't know why it went off. <laughs> but then you'd find out that there were the thundering and lightning outside and then that's what had set, him, set her off. What does it feel like coming back down here when you do come back and visit? It's strange. It's it's nice because we spent so much time. I mean, uh, downstairs, there's various equipment that we used. I, I think we're going to go into the dormitory. Yes, I'll show you where we tried to sleep. You wouldn't get much sleep because the air conditioning was quite noisy. Um. But this is just across the corridor from the general thing. And this is the ladies' dormitory. So we're stepping out of the operations room, which has such an aesthetic of the time. The chairs are a kind of light orangey colour, the walls are blue. It feels almost like a submarine. And then stepping out into the dormitory, which to me just feels very stark. There's 10, there's maybe 12 bunks in here. My you gosh, it's not, yeah, it's not a luxurious space at all. Not really, no, no. One of our exercises used to go on 24 hours. So they would have people who would be able to come in here and sleep. But as I say, 
the air conditioning is quite noisy. Did you spend many nights in here then? I don't think I ever slept in in here at all. They won't they won't be right comfortable. What was it like being a woman doing this work in the bunker? Were there lots of women in the RAC? There were about as many women as there were men. You you weren't a minority at all. Mm. You had a leading observer who was in charge of the training and they they teach as well. And then above them you'd have a chief observer and then we had an officer in, in charge of the crew. So all three crews were the same. And I was the first woman group officer in York. Ah, oh, that's exciting. I to fame. I'm now back up at the slightly above ground level and we've got the door open, got some nice fresh 21st century air blowing in. Kevin, thanks so much for showing me around. Pleasure. It's got a really unusual atmosphere, this place. I don't know, unique sounds like a... It's not a good, not a good enough word, is it, really? There is something particular, I find, about this space, those interiors, the sense of, of people and process that has gone on down there. What do the general public tend to think about this place when they visit? We've had people you know, write comments for us or talk to us about how it dredges up memories or ideas or thoughts that they had either forgotten they'd ever had or never really realised that they processed in the first place. And it's bringing to the fore thought processes that perhaps they never really formally constituted at the time. But then you get younger people who think bunkers are the kind of thing you see in a video game and expect perhaps to see this kind of dark, foreboding place and what they're faced with is the banality of an office block underground with no windows. It's so interesting to meet a former ROC like Anne. The actual people who spent decades being a part of this organisation that was so closed and so unusual. Yeah, I mean, I started meeting these people, what, 15, 16 years ago, so Mm -hmm. they were actually closer to service then than than in the time that, that, I, that I've known them. And, but it's taken, in some ways, this long to find these kind of expressions that Anne was perhaps giving today, you know, about what it was actually like, what it felt like, what their emotions were. And I love the fact that even now they're still disclosing new things and sort of giving you new angles to interpret. And surprising themselves when they do it. You can find out more on these stories by going to the website english-heritage.org.uk slash speakingwithshadows. Or head to the English Heritage website and find out how you can visit the bunker yourself. Share this podcast on your social media with the hashtag speakingwithshadows.